0: wild fermented beer native american beans and egg foo young served on white bread this week we're diving into the tv world of taste makers with cat neville traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes tasty beverages and interesting experiences this is the destination eat drink podcast on the radio misfits podcast network I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. In a moment, I'll be talking with Kat Neville of the TV show Tastemakers. But first, let me remind you to subscribe to the podcast. Go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, or Radiomisfits.com to subscribe. Or get a link to the podcast by going to DestinationEatDrink.com and click on the podcast tab. Farm to table is a term that gets thrown around quite a bit these days. But my guest, Kat Neville, really explores the idea on her show, Tastemakers. She'll do things like trace the grain all the way from the farmer who grows it in the field and follow it to the mill where it gets processed into flour and then go to the business that uses the flour to make interesting breads. That's what Cat Show Tastemakers is all about. And a little bit later on, Cat will tell us about some of the local dishes that define her hometown of St. Louis's unique cuisine. All of this is making me hungry, so let's eat. Destination, eat, drink. Katherine Neville is an Emmy Award-winning TV host and personality. She's also the publisher of Feast Magazine and was co-founder and editor of Sauce Magazine. Kat, welcome to Destination Eat Drink.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Kat, you are the host of the TV show Makers on PBS Explain the concept of Tastemakers.
1: So you mentioned that I've been in the food media industry. I've been in the food media industry for about 20 years. And in that time, I've really watched the local food movement um, evolve and explode. And and when I was given the opportunity to create a new platform um, that would air on, on PBS, what I wanted to do was tell stories that were not already being told in the food space. There's a lot of food media and people are doing incredible work. Um, and there's a lot of stories about chefs and even farmers. But what I really am seeing is kind of this, this news kind of like third wave essentially of food is that not only do people want to know that their bread was locally baked, they want to know where the flour was milled, where the grain was grown. Um, and so that's what the heart of this series is about. It's about the maker movement. And what I do is I center the stories around the makers themselves. And that could be anyone from For example, Barton Springs Mill um, in Dripping Springs, Texas, where he is um, essentially a grain hub and he's sourcing grain from Texas farmers and he's supplying those products to local bakers and um, distillers and brewers. So I used James Brown is his name. I used James as kind of the tent pole. And then I talked to the maker about who in their world, you know, is the biggest part of their story, has the biggest impact. And um, so we kind of build the story around, um, around them, but it's not just a profile. It, is, it really talks about how all of these people in the food community intersect and how it truly is a community and and everyone's kind of codependent um, in this local food economy. So that's that's the concept in a nutshell.
0: I think that's a great way to put it because when I watch the show, I think. There's gardening shows out there. There's cooking shows out there. There's artisan food shows out there. But this brings it all together. Like I was watching just uh, this morning, I was watching the episode on the custard maker who's down in uh, near Houston, I believe. And mm-hmm. you went from not only her, how she makes the custard, but where she sources the milk, the farm that she sources the milk from. And then you go forward to her customers, a restaurant in this case, and where they're actually serving her custard. I don't think there's anything else really like this on TV, and that's what makes it so unique. You mentioned the maker movement, Kat. What... What is the maker movement? How do you define that?
1: Well, that's that's a really good question. And if you Google maker movement, it really kind of started or at least when you Google it, it will it'll say that it's kind of in the heart of the tech community. People who are coding their own scripts and things like that, but really it's it's where you see people creating. And maybe it's people it's kind of like Etsy, it's people who are making crafts, people who are brewing beer, Pre, you know, it's people who are creating something, they're making something that is an extension of themselves. And so, you know, it's really, it's a response uh, frankly, to the kind of homogenization of our culture where you stop into the grocery store and everything is from or it used to be everything used to be kind of from um, a large corporation with these really big brands. And people are looking for something. And I hate using the term authentic because I think that it's overused and frankly kind of trite. Um, but something that has um, a story behind it, for be- lack of a, a better way to put it, something that has a connection to something. Someone who really cares about the product that they're making and it creates a through line um, from you know this farmer, they aren't just selling into the commodity market for whatever the price the commodity market will pay. They're selling directly to, say it's a dairy farmer, they're selling directly to um, Kathleen, who is making that into custard, and then Kathleen is sourcing it, you know, to to chefs there in Houston. And so it, it's something where it truly is a, um, a local economy that's built around food as opposed to just buying and accessing these commoditized um, ingredients. And what you end up with is um, delicious food, obviously, um, but you end up with a healthier economy and you end up with people who are able to create sustainable Businesses and these are also people who are doing things in the right way. They they're looking at how they can benefit the land, how they can you know give back to their community. And so it's something where you know when when you really look at it from that holistic uh, you know standpoint, you really are saying okay this loaf of bread or this this glass of beer is not just one product that tastes good or that I enjoy. There's an entire string of benefits from um, from sourcing that particular product.
0: And I think that's why if you care about your community, that's why you should care about things like this because – does a big corporation care what happens to your community? How many times have we seen a big corporation come in, suck all the tax breaks that they possibly can, and then, boom, leave the community, leave a a facility that's rotting in the ground in that community and leaving everyone unemployed? This is a way where you can have a self-contained economy and everyone in that community actually benefits from it.
1: What's exciting to me is that it's happening everywhere. This is not um, a phenomenon that's only popping up in um, in either large cities or in particular parts of the country. This is happening in every single corner of America. And whenever you travel, say you're going to, um, you know, Seattle, Washington, or if you're going to Phoenix, Arizona, or if you're going to Indianapolis, Indiana, the flavors are different. The products are different. The ethos is similar. Um, but What is exciting from a food and from, you know, from a consumer standpoint is that you get to try these products that you can't have anywhere else and they are delicious. And that's that really is, you know, I mean, it's all this feel good story about the economy. But when you get down to it, these products are just far superior and it is something that you want to seek out.
0: And that's really one of the focuses of this podcast is that, you know, going to these different cities, going to these different regions, you're going to taste something, you're going to try something something that's hyper local that you're not going to find somewhere else. I personally, this is how I discovered it 20 years ago on our first trip to Europe. We went to Italy and I came to realize you go to one village and they make a certain kind of bread and you go to the next village and you ask for it and they have no idea what you're talking about. They're like, we don't make that, we make this. And so it's mm-hmm. completely different. You were just in Austin, Texas. You just mentioned Dripping Springs, which is just outside mm-hmm. of Austin, Texas. You were in Austin filming a episode for season two of Taste Makers. What did you discover in Austin that's hyper local that you enjoyed, if anything?
1: Well, that truly um, that was the Grain Hub that I mentioned, and so James is supplying the places that we went. So first off. We went to Sour Duck, which is this incredible artisan bakery, and they are using almost every single grain that James produces. And that is obviously, you know, these um, really interesting heritage varieties of wheat, like um, uh, Rouge de Bordeaux or Red Fife. They have these one uh, Sonoran wheat. They have these wonderful names, and they're so distinct. So, this particular bakery, you know, they're making um, you know these these pastries that are not sugar forward. They are grain forward. They are complex and they are uh, they're 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 really really fascinating and delicious. Um, so that's sour duck in Austin. We also went to Easy Tiger.
0: Oh, I love Easy Tiger. Yes, one of my yeah, favorite. Easy yeah. Tiger is the best. <laughs> I love <laughs> those guys. It is the best. So we.
1: So we got back into the kitchen um, and we had a chance to watch how they're using um, James's flour to not only make uh, some loaves of, of, you know, kind of like standard bread. But then also um, because he has a an artisan, a heritage um, rye variety that he sources to them, they're making um, those very, really, really dense um, rye loaves that are used for um, for the Danish style open sandwiches. So we got a chance to kind of see how they're utilizing this rye bread to make that really traditional dense loaf that is frankly, kind of difficult to find. Um, and then we also followed uh, the the James's Grain to Treaty Oak Distilling and oh, yeah. uh, were able, delicious. I mean, the way that they are turning those grains into bourbon, um, they, I guess they, uh, they have a cocktail lab on site. So we went in and had a chance to watch them work with the bourbon and making these cocktails. And then they also use the grains in their on-site destination restaurant, which is, Fantastic. And then the last place that we went um, to kind of see how people are using James's grain is uh, Jester King Brewing, which ah, yes. if you, yeah, I mean, if you're a beer nerd, you know the name Jester King. They are famous for their wild yeast fermentations. They're really creative and hyper local, um, you know, approach. And they also have a restaurant on site where they do these wood-fired pizzas and pastries and breads, and they're exclusively using James's flour there. So, you know, what's exciting is that not, is, it's not just that James is is milling local flour. It's that he's offering these folks in the Austin area, a product that is totally unique. And then they are able to create something that you can only get, you know, it helps them to distinguish themselves, um, you know, in, in, in the food industry. So, I mean, every place that we went, um, I was really struck by the food community in Austin. They, they, they truly understand the value of sourcing locally, not just from the product side, but from that community side that we were talking about. It was, it was a great trip.
0: Well, we'll look forward to seeing that on season two of Tastemakers. When, when is season two uh, coming out on PBS?
1: So we release in january okay. and um and because it's p b s it's it's kind of different in terms of the scheduling station by station so um, if you go to my website, it's just like watchtastemakers.com. You, we, I will put up schedules. Um, and obviously on social, but yeah, it comes out in January. And, um, so one of the things I did in developing the platform, um, for Tastemakers and kind of what that word really kind of means is that I want for me, um, having done this work for as long as I have the value, the true value. In what I believe these types of stories can lend to the industry is a direct connection between those makers and those farmers and those chefs with the community, the people who will actually support them. Um, financially, frankly. And so we have this series of events called Meet the Makers where we go back to cities uh, where we host, where we shot these episodes and we bring the makers back up on stage for live cooking demos and interviews and, um, and we show segments. And so we have this kind of live um, program that lasts for about an hour. And then following that in every city, we do, um, this tasting where we invite, uh, makers and chefs and brewers and distillers from the region to come and offer samples and then sell on site, kind of like a pop-up farmer's market. We call it the maker's market. Um, and so it's, it's really what I want tastemakers to do is not just tell a story, but to really, truly help to connect people with those folks in their food community on the ground as well. I
0: love that idea. That's great. For folks who are living in their own town, what advice would you give them to connect with some of these makers? Because it's not as easy as just going to your grocery store. You know, People can go to the store and they can pick up what they need or whatever, but it's not the same. But sometimes it's a little more difficult to make that connection. How, how do you suggest people do that?
1: The easiest way, is to go to your local farmer's market. Um, That is where uh, a lot of makers gravitate because that is where they're able to directly connect with consumers. And just about every, not every town necessarily, but most regions have a farmer's market these days, which is wonderful. So that is what I would suggest is the first way of of finding local makers in your area. Another way is um, to kind of do a little digging around and see like these, you know, quote unquote, farm to table restaurants kind of see what chefs or what, um, what farmers and makers they're listing on their menus as places where they source. Um, so sometimes these, these makers and these farmers don't necessarily want to go direct to consumer in, in, uh, you know, at a farmer's market specifically, but still have products available. And so, um, that's another way to kind of uh, you know hunt down um, some, some local folks.
0: People may not realize that for a 30-minute or a 25-minute show that you do for PBS, you're spending an entire week on location. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're on the road, what are some of your favorite ways to explore a city and dig out some of the more authentic I'm going to use that word you don't like, authentic places, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, some, some places that might be a little more off the beaten path.
1: Well, I mean, obviously, the interwebs are a wonderful resource. There are so many. Um, local media sources. You mentioned that I'm the publisher of Feast Magazine, which is a, a regional magazine in, um, that covers the state of Missouri. And that is, number one, I seek out local media to see who they're covering. Edible um, is a wonderful kind of network of, um, of magazines that are really focused on, um, on highlighting local makers and chefs and farmers and all that kind of stuff. So if there's a um, an edible in the city that you're going to, that's good. Obviously, Eater does a fantastic job. But for me, what I really do is I talk to the folks who I'm going to be connecting with and I'm like, where should I go? And, um, and so like, for example, when I was in Austin, just recently, we went to a place that, um, that James recommended called suerte. And, um, and what they do is they have kind of like this latin inspired fusion quote-unquote menu and they are using his corn in a, some really interesting ways and in like tamales and um and all those other uh, like in uh tortillas and they'll have like his blood bloody butcher red corn tortilla um you know kind of that was paired with this wonderful ceviche you know so um i like to ask the people who really are in the know uh those and those are the folks on the ground who are in the industry
0: what are some of your other favorite cities or places to visit um when you have some time to travel for yourself (laughs) does that (laughs) ever happen
1: (laughs) it almost never happens i mean because we do 13 episodes and like you mentioned it's um it is definitely a week that we're spending with each one but i mean what i what i love some of my favorite cities i absolutely adore seattle um i just got back from portland maine um absolutely great food city Oh my gosh. It was a fantastic food city, especially if you love not just lobster, but, um, but oysters and I ate, I don't even know how many oysters I ate, but it was, it was fantastic. And we were there actually shooting, um, an episode, uh, focused on kale production uh, kelp. Sorry. I said kale (laughs) kelp production. So that is a city I definitely want to return to. It was fantastic. Um, obviously, you know, uh, the kind of the San Francisco region, that whole area is just an, it it is, you know, humming with, uh, activity in, in the food and the beverage scene. And I mean, you can never go wrong going to New York. I mean, what I, I grew up traveling. Um, my dad was in the military. And so what I love is just being able to explore and go to places that, that are unfamiliar to me. I love that, that experience of, of, of finding a place for the first time. So I'm always just kind of uh, just trying to find new spots. Um, one of my favorite cities that I, I kind of drove through when I drove from L.A. to St. Louis a few years ago, I absolutely love like Santa Fe is is a gorgeous yes. city. Um, and, you know, not just the food scene, but the art scene, you know, there's just so much going on and it's just really distinct. I mean, from coast to coast, the United States is an incredible place to explore.
0: I love Santa Fe. I've, I've written uh, extensively about it on my website. One day I will do a podcast on Santa Fe. My mom got me into Santa Fe when, when I was a kid, she used to go there all the time because she loved Georgia O'Keeffe. And that's what made me love Santa Fe. And uh, we love traveling to Santa. When we lived in Austin, we used to love to go to Santa Fe because it's a quick little trip over there. Yeah, definitely. So season two is coming up in January. You mentioned Mm -hmm. Austin. where uh, Portland, I think. Are you doing an episode on Portland uh, with Kelp? And where else are you going in season two?
1: So uh, we also went to the Gila River Indian community just outside of Phoenix, Arizona to explore the tepary bean and how its cultivation is coming back in particular Um, you know, through uh, through uh, Ramona Farms is the name of the farm. And Ramona has been farming since the 70s um, there, you know, in that community. And so um, the elders in her community asked her very specifically to start cultivating this tepary bean because it had essentially almost disappeared. And she found these old seeds that her, her grandfather had kind of squirreled away. And so she's been cultivating that. And she and her daughters are using um, that tepary bean as a way to reconnect the people in their community with their history and their culture and reinstill a sense of 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 pride but also just an understanding of the importance that that food plays in um in their spiritual well-being as well and so that was a that was a a fantastic opportunity and they opened their doors to the crew and and that that part of of Arizona is absolutely gorgeous so that was incredible and I also went to um Indianapolis um And I don't know if you've heard of Smoking Goose, but uh, Chris Ely is – it's amazing. If you love charcuterie, he is making some of the best that I truly have ever had. He uh, is doing these naturally fermented long – fermented cured meats. And, and he does do some, uh, some things that are, are very traditional, but he also puts his own kind of Indiana spin, um, on, on other kind of seasonal preparations. And so with that one, we had a chance to go and, and visit, uh, his exclusive beef supplier, but then we also had a chance to go up, um, to a place called, uh, Fisher farms and, uh, oh no, sorry, it's Gunthorpe Farms. Fisher is the one who supplies his beef, but Gunthorpe Farms, um, up actually pretty close to Chicago, it is the second or third largest pasture poultry. Um, supplier in the country. And what Greg, uh, Gunthorpe is doing, he's not just pasture raising these animals. He actually has his processing facility on site. So, and these animals, they spend their entire lives on the farm under his care from beginning, um, to when, when they're butchered. And that is, Highly, highly unusual. So it was a really special experience to be able to go and um, and meet him and see how he raises his ducks and his turkeys and his chickens, um, and then obviously also the be able to get inside of his processing facility, which is really small, um, which I'm sure you can you can imagine. But it's it's exciting to see a farmer really kind of take control of the entire process from beginning to end.
0: I want to go back to Arizona, Kat, because you mentioned the tepary bean, which mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not familiar with, not surprisingly. T- tell me about this bean. Is it a broad bean? What kind of a bean is it? And what, what do you do with it?
1: So it's kind of kind of like a pinto bean. It's smaller though. It's much smaller. It has a wonderful flavor. There are a number of different varieties. Ramona specifically grows the red, the black, and the white, and they all are incredibly nutrient dense. And so they have a really high level of like calcium and protein and, um, and, and fiber obviously and minerals. And, and so they have a much, uh, um, uh, much more beneficial nutrients, uh, you know, whatever they're, they're healthier for you than other types of beans. Um, and so you would cook them in, in really kind of a similar way that you would any other kind of, of bean, like a, a pinto or, or a black bean or something like that. It's just, they have this really distinct flavor and the, the black bean, um, the black tepary bean in particular has kind of a chocolatey flavor to it. And um, one of the chefs who we visited at Cotton and Copper in, um, uh, near the, the community, she actually used that bean in a dessert uh, because it had that kind of chocolate character to it. So people are really kind of playing around and doing some really fun and interesting things with these unusual ingredients.
0: Oh, I love it. I'm going to have to look for that because that sounds really interesting. Um, yeah. One of the great things, you know, you do this, you do your show Tastemakers. I was wondering... Any plans for taking Tastemakers International? Because I can envision you in France or in Italy just doing some amazing shows.
1: A lot of people have asked me that, and I I would I think that it sounds like a, a wonderful adventure, but I really want to tell the story of American food. In my for me personally, what I see this moment in time as is kind of a renaissance or even a not even a renaissance. It actually is a a defining moment for American food. I mean, look at where we were back in the 70s when the idea of fine dining, it was French food, Um, you know, so what we're, what we've seen with all of these people, like the beginning of this air quotes, farm to table movement is that people, because they're relying on sourcing locally and working within the seasons and working within products that grow in their regions, we're starting to really see what true American cuisine is, that it's not just burgers, you know, that it, it's something that, that really grows out of, um, of ingredients that, that, you know, that are, are from that particular area. So to me, it's almost inexhaustible in being able to tell the story of, of American food and the American food movement. So I, I would uh, absolutely love to travel the world telling stories like this, too. But um, for, for now, I, I really want to stick with um, the story of what's happening here.
0: You got a lot of stories left to tell too, I think. Oh
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: Kat, you're from St. Louis. Well, you said you were a military brat, so maybe you're not from St. Louis, but you live in St. Louis. (laughs) Yes, I do. And the Gateway City has a really unique food culture. And I don't think a lot of people realize this, but let's talk some famous St. Louis dishes. Well, first of all, what are some of your favorite places to go in St. Louis? Where where do you like to go, and what are some of your favorite dishes?
1: Well, so um, one of my favorite places at this moment is uh, a place called Louis, and it is the in the DeMun neighborhood, which is right near Clayton in in St. Louis. And Matt McGuire and his team over there. Um, it's an Italian restaurant, but it. It is one of those, one of the, the types of places where when you read the menu, it seems like it's very simple, but when you receive the dishes, they are so perfectly prepared. And, um, one of the things that, that really helps to distinguish it is its wine list. Um, Matt is just a wine nerd. And so he has created this wine list where the price point isn't terribly high, but the, um, the, what, what he's offering is really really unique. He's pulling from areas of, of Italy. I mean, a lot of people, uh, kind of play it safe in neighborhood restaurants with their wine list and what he's, he's pulling together all these wines that you're like, please explain this to me because I don't even know what this is when you, when you read the wine list sometimes. And so it's just a really special place. I love that. Um, Vistia is another restaurant in St. Louis that I would highly recommend that people seek out. It's in the Cortex, which is kind of the tech district of um, St. Louis City. And uh, the the Galenas, Michael and Tara Galena, are really doing, um, again, this kind of like working directly with local farmers and makers and the the food that they're um, producing there because they have this massive wood-fired oven that is outside that they're utilizing um, not just – As like uh, like to do pizzas, they're hanging things in the chimney and they're, you know, they're they're spit roasting meats and they're just really doing some some interesting and very current um, preparations. So those are two that I would highly recommend um, folks check out if they have a chance to come to St. Louis.
0: I think most people, if they know one thing about St. Louis, they probably know about Little Italy. And because of that, maybe they know about um, toasted raviolis, uh, (laughs) which, you know, apparently had their start in St. Louis and is a very famous St. Louis dish. What about toasted raviolis?
1: Well, I mean, what's wrong with fried ravioli? It's delicious. (laughs) I mean, it's it's fantastic. I mean, it's one of those things where, yeah, it's like most of the bars in St. Louis have a version of toasted ravioli with a marinara sauce on the side, a kind of a salty marinara is what you're looking for. And, you know, some some folks will hand make. Um, like Katie's pizza and pasta, which is in Rock Hill, you know, they will hand make maybe, I think that there's, might be stuffed with like spinach and artichoke or something like that. But the traditional version is stuffed with obviously ground beef. And, um, and if they're made right, they're not over fried are Um, you know, the, the dough is really nice. They're absolutely delicious. And so, yeah, definitely when you come to St. Louis get some. we call them tea raves or toasted raves. Um, but yeah, toasted ravioli is a must try for sure.
0: So this is bar food. So you have this with a beer or something? Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) And St. Louis has their own kind of pizza, St. Louis pizza. Describe this.
1: Okay. So St. Louis style pizza, which I like, even though I am not from St. Louis, it has a very thin crust. Um, and then the, the tomato sauce, which is applied in a relatively thin layer is kind of sweet and has a lot of oregano, um, and whatever toppings that's fine. But what distinguishes St. Louis style pizza that if you live in St. Louis, um, this is kind of a, a point of contention for many, many people. It is the Provel cheese and Provel cheese is, is, um, You really can't find it outside of St. Louis uh, very easily. It is – and it's like capital P. So it's actually a trademark type of cheese that mixes together um, provolone and Swiss and cheddar and a little bit of um, smoke – like smoke flavoring, believe it or not. And it melts – Kind of like, uh, it melts really, really, cr- it's very creamy. And so it melts into all the- It's a mixture of cheeses, cat. It's a processed cheese. Okay, so the, very They process together okay. all, yeah, they process together all these kinds of cheese. And, um, and so it melts uh, into this kind of creaminess that, and that's one of the things that distinguishes St. Louis style pizza as well, is you want it to be cooked a little too much. Like you want that cheese to really kind of get into all the nooks and crannies and for it to be just a little bit caramelized on top that's when it's a really perfect St. Louis-style pizza.
0: And is there any place in St. Louis where you'd say – this is the spot to go to get St. Louis pizza.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yes. And, of course, the name of it is Escaping Me. I will have to email you so you can put it up on your website. But it's this place that's been around since the 50s. And if I keep talking, maybe I'll remember. Um, but they are actually in the basement of a house in South City. Oh, and um, it. and it's – yeah, it's awesome. And you go in and it still has kind of like those mid-century, like 1970s-style murals all around and um, everything is served on a tray, and uh, those pizzas are absolutely my favorite. They make all of their sausage in-house. I'll shoot you an email with the list so you can put it up on your website.
0: We'll add that to the show notes, and we'll also put all these places that you're talking about um, before on the show notes as well. Something I've never had in St. Louis, and I'd never even heard of till I started researching St. Louis, is the St. Paul sandwich, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I I'm not going to comment on this. I'm going to let you comment on it because like I said, I've never had it. So tell me about the St. Paul sandwich.
1: I mean, it's one of those kind of weird things. It is um, egg foo young on white bread, essentially. Um, And there are various versions at um, Chinese restaurants all over. And it also is a very kind of like mid-century Americana dish. And um, I've had kind of Elevated versions of it, Um, but it's one of those comfort food uh, dishes where, you know, there's mayonnaise on white bread with an egg foo young patty and it's just it's tasty and it sounds weird, but a lot of those types of, you know, like you want something like quick, uh, like guys who like maybe had a break at the factory, they want something that they can go in that's handheld, that's quick and they can run back to, to work. And that's, you know, St. Louis has an industrial past and, and that's kind of where that sandwich grew out of.
0: And then the last one I want to ask you about, Kat, is uh, something called the slinger, which I'm also not familiar yes. with.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the slinger is, uh, is hangover food, times 10. Um, and there are a lot of different versions, but essentially it's like hash browns on the bottom and either sausage patties or hamburger patties. Uh, and then it also has, um, eggs and chili and cheese and onions. So (laughs) it is, um, you know, there, people kind of change it up uh, depending on where you're where you actually get your hands on one of these things. But if you're hungover on a Sunday morning or a Saturday, you get yourself a slinger, you're going to feel fine.
0: Gotcha. So you mentioned hangover food, the slinger. Um, but let's go back pre hangover. Where do you want to go out in St. Louis to enjoy an evening?
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, it depends on what you want to do. St. Louis has an incredible craft beer scene. Uh, there are. Many, many, many uh, wonderful breweries. As far as neighborhoods, the Grove is fantastic. Uh, The Central West End is is kind of like one of those places where you can walk from place to place. Um, But if you're interested in kind of like that you know, getting a taste of craft beer. Um, I would highly recommend going to Side Project in Maplewood. Um, they, uh, kind of along the lines of Jester King, who we talked about earlier, they're doing some really interesting um, uh, beers, doing a lot of wild ferments and, and some really funky kind of Belgian style stuff. Really delicious. Um, there's also Perennial. I would highly recommend seeking them out. They're um, kind of in South City and they have a great restaurant on site as well. Um, some, again, kind of like sourcing locally there's Forehands, which is in LaSalle Park. There's Urban Chestnut, um, which has two locations. But the one you want to visit, if you're coming to St. Louis, I would recommend is the one in the Grove because they have a great beer hall with all this fantastic German food. And um, there are just a, a ton of you know, civil life brewing. There are just a ton of really great breweries to check out. And there are also a number of distilleries that are popping up. Um, not just in St. Louis, but kind of in that entire region. And and one of my favorite spots to go is still 630. Um, they are right downtown. So say you're coming to St. Louis for, you know, a cards game or a blues game or something like that. Um, they are just south of downtown and they have a tasting room where you can go in and take a tour, but their, um, their spirits are absolutely delicious. And Forehands brewing also has a spirits line called 1220. And they're doing things like, um, Gin, and they just released a whole line of canned cocktails that are perfect for summer. So there's a ton of stuff going on in the beverage industry in St. Louis.
0: So, Kat, we thank you for being on the show. I'm looking really, I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing season two of Tastemakers. But before we let you go, remind people of your website where they can go and uh, learn more about Tastemakers and learn more about you.
1: Absolutely, it's wearetastemakers.com. And I have a, a different section for each one of the um, episodes that we did in our first season, with links where you can see the full episode online on PBS.org. And if you follow um, what we're doing on like on Instagram, um, I am I'm just kind of like posting as we're on the road, so that's how you can kind of follow what we're working on for the second season. And yeah, when that comes out, that's when we have Meet the Makers. So if, if anybody wants to join me um, on the event series, all that information will be online as well.
0: Well, keep us updated with that, Kat, because we'll put that on the website as well when you're doing all of your uh, events around the country. Kat Neville, thank you so much for being on Destination Eat Drink.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: I just love talking to Kat Neville. She's got such great energy and passion for local food. You can catch her show, Tastemakers, on your PBS station. And thanks to Kat for schooling me on St. Louis pizza and slingers. That's going to do it for this episode of Destination Eat Drink. We drop a new episode each Friday. Subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss one. Join me next week. We're going to visit Hawaii's island of Kauai. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by Ed Silla. Big thanks to him. I'm Brent Peterson, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.